Well, thank you, Ira. Great is the Lord's faithfulness, isn't it? What hope we have in that. Well, good morning, Gateway family. It is good to see you this morning. I'm thankful for Drew preaching two weeks ago and Carmen preaching last week. And I just want you to know what a blessing it is that we have so many men of God in this church who are able to fill the pulpits and to preach. That is not very common to have churches where you have so many men who are able to so faithfully expound the Word of God. And you saw that during the interim period before I came. That it's rare for a church to go on for a year even without an interim pastor because there were so many men here who were faithful to the Scriptures and able to preach the Word of God. I just want you to realize what a blessing the Lord has entrusted to us with so many great teachers of the Word of God here. So I'm thankful for Drew's message two weeks ago and Carmen's message last week. My heart was full from those, and I'm grateful for that. I'm excited about continuing the Gospel of John this morning. I'm looking forward to being back here with you as we share the Gospel of John and continue our journey through that. Now, just a quick review of where we are in the Gospel of John, just if you're new with us this morning or just to get us all caught up since it's been two weeks on the Gospel of John series. We talked about the very first week in the introduction. Why did John write the book? And John 20, 31 tells us he wrote these things so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing we have life in his name. And so John wrote this so we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing we would have life. That's the purpose for the whole book. The whole book revolves around that very purpose, that we might Believe. We saw in the very beginning of John chapter 1 that John the Apostle, who wrote the Gospel of John, gives us an introduction to the book. In the introduction to the book, he helped us see that Jesus is the eternal Word. He helped us see that Jesus was the light and that Jesus came to show us God's glory, to make us children of God, and to give us grace upon grace. You remember the imagery of grace upon grace and the waves of grace crashing over us. The next week we saw the introduction from John the Baptist. As Jesus' ministry got introduced through him, we saw how that really John the Baptist lived to exalt Christ and really how he modeled for us, not only showing us that Jesus is the Son of God, but everything about John the Baptist's life was about exalting Christ. His attitude, his actions, everything was about making much of Christ. And then the next week we looked at the earliest followers of Christ, his earliest disciples, and we saw that when people follow Jesus, they not only follow him, they invite others to do the same. And when Drew preached, he summarized that message better than I could even summarize it. We said this is simply a simple invitation with an incredible opportunity. We really see that in the earliest followers of Christ. And they would just tell their friends, come and see. And how they model for us a simple invitation but an incredible opportunity. Then two weeks ago, Drew showed us the very first miracle of Jesus from John chapter 2. And that's the changing of water to wine. And Drew helped us see that morning that all of these miracles that we're going to see reveal God's glory, reveal Jesus' glory, and help us to believe in him. And so we saw that. Well, I hope you see a common theme emerging throughout John, that everything is about Jesus. It's all about his glory. It's all a story about him. And it's a call for us to believe that John is presenting to us in all these things who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is God himself. And he's calling us to Believe, And that continues this morning. In John chapter 2, we're going to be starting this morning in verse 13. We'll be in verses 13 through 25 this morning of John 2. And we're looking at the familiar text, to many of you, of Jesus cleansing the temple. As we look at it, I want us to see some things that perhaps we may have not seen before. Because in this story of Jesus cleansing the temple, it's really a story of contrast. And there's three contrasts we're going to look at in this story this morning. So as we're looking at the text, as we're reading it, just be listening for what these contrasts might be in this very familiar text. So as we come to John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, 
And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you've given us your word. We're thankful particularly for the gospel of John we're studying right now, that you have given this to us, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. God, I pray this day you might enlarge our belief in our faith in Christ. Would you this day give us life in his name as we look more into who Jesus is and what he's done here. And I pray you would grow us to this. Lord, our confidence is in the fact that your word does not return void. Lord, I don't know what's happening in each of these friends' lives this morning, but you do. Lord, I pray you'll take your word and use it in their lives this day to give them hope, to encourage them, and Lord, just to build them up in their faith in you. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So before we get into the contrast of this text, there's two things I want to mention, first of all. The first is the timing of this account. If you're familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are we call the Synoptic Gospels. And they have the Gospel of John. Well, in the other Gospels, the story of Jesus cleansing the temple appears at the end of Jesus' ministry. Here we are in the Gospel of John. It's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and that's troubled some people in the past over why this case. And so some come down to perhaps there was two cleansings of the temple. I just want to say, I don't think there's two cleansings in the temple. I believe this one and the same that we see recorded in all the Gospels. And don't let the timing trouble you. Remember why John is writing here. John is writing not to be a newspaper reporter, not to give us a chronological account of things. John has told us in John 23, he's writing that we might believe. So John is giving us a theological argument, a case. He's not saying I'm putting everything in chronological order. He's saying I'm going to build a case for you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so you may have life in his name. And so I believe this is one and the same with the cleansing of the temple that you see latter in Jesus' ministry in the other gospel. But John has stuck it here at the beginning for us by design to help us understand who Jesus is and what he is trying to do. second thing I want to mention before we get into the contrast here is the nature of Jesus. Because so often it seems like in our culture you look at Sunday school posters, and I think they haven't seen them here on this campus, but you have Jesus with this flowing blonde hair and this very pale skin and a guy who probably never got his hands dirty. I mean, he looks like a pacifist, a guy who probably never raised his voice anyway. We kind of have this cleaned-up Jesus in our thinking in our American culture. But you look at what happens today, and this is far from a cleaned-up, soft-spoken Jesus. And what's happening here is he's cleansing the temple. So kind of realize, and let's try to put aside some of perhaps the Sunday school images we've seen in our childhood, and really look at who Jesus is and what he's doing here in this text. So three contrasts I want to see. The first is the contrast of what the temple is supposed to be, Versus what the temple actually was being used for. So the first contrast when we see in this text is what the temple was supposed to be, what God designed for it to be, and then how the temple was being used. And to see this contrast, we need to start with the first question, why in the world was Jesus at the temple in the first place? Look at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to the temple because of the Passover. 
If you're not familiar with the Passover, this is a feast that was done yearly by the Jews. This goes back to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. God's people have been slaves in Egypt for a long time, and God delivers them. He sent signs to get the Pharaoh, the king's attention. When the Pharaoh doesn't respond, he sends a final plague, a final sign. That is, he's going to let the angel of death pass over the land. And the firstborn of everything, animal and people, would die unless the people who have faith in God we kill an innocent lamb. They take the blood and they put the blood on the doorpost of their house. And when the angel of death saw the blood covering the door, the angel would pass over and spare that house, the being stricken with the death of the firstborn. That plague happens. God's people are delivered from slavery because the Egyptians send them on their way and they leave. And so the Jews annually celebrate this, the Passover, their deliverance from physical slavery. This was a big, important feast in the life of the Jews. And Jewish men would travel to Jerusalem to be part of this huge Passover celebration where there would be continuing sacrifice of animals as they would continue to remember how the Passover lamb had delivered them and how God had used that to deliver them. And so the temple was an important place, not only this feast, but all year long for the worship of the Jews. But very important for today's text, the temple was not just... For the Jews, there was something else going on here. And if in Mark's account of what happens in the cleansing temple, in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, I want you to see that. If you can put that up on the screen for us. Similar account, but it says, And he, Jesus, was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for who? All the nations. But you've made it in a robbers. Realize we think of the temple, we think of it just for the Jews so often. But God's design was that the temple be a place for the nations as well. It had an outreach, missiological component to it, not just for the Jews. It was for the nations. And in fact, where the selling was happening, where we have today's account, was in the outer court of the temple, which you may know as the court of the Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles. The temple actually had a court for Gentiles, for non-Jews, for the God-fearers to come. The Gentiles, the non-believers, were not allowed to go into the, to the innermost part of the temple, but they could come to the court of the Gentiles. There they could worship God, but it was also there that the Jews were called to engage the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles had to be a place for the nations to come learn about God and a place for the nations to come worship God as well. And so the temple was for both the Jews and the Gentiles. But was that how the court of the Gentiles was being used? And the answer is no. The place for the nations was not being used as it intended. Verse 14 now, back in John 2. And the temple, again, this is now speaking of the court of the Gentiles. In the temple, he, Jesus, found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So the place that was supposed to be for the Gentiles to come was a place now of business. What's up with these particular animals, the ox and the sheep and the pigeons? Well, these are all animals for sacrifices because it was harder for the travelers to bring animals with them so they could get in the temple, buy the sacrifices, and go do the sacrifices. The oxen here was a peace offering. It goes back to Numbers chapter 7. The sheep was a sin offering that people could bring, and that was from Leviticus chapter 5. And the pigeons, this was also a sin offering, but it was a sin offering of the poor, the poor who could not afford to buy a whole sheep. For the offering could, according to Leviticus 5, buy a less expensive pigeon here for their own sin offering. But catch this. These animals, these oxen, these sheep, these pigeons were being sold not in the community that people to bring to the temple. They were being sold in the temple itself for the convenience of the Jews. The reason the court of the Gentiles had been made a marketplace was for the convenience of the Jews to be able to just do everything in kind of a one-stop shop there in the temple. Same thing was true of the money changers. Why, why were the money changers there? It was for the convenience. Exodus chapter 30 tells us why the money changers had to be there. In Exodus chapter 30, verse 13, we see this. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this 
half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Then in verse 14, everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. And so there was a requirement for all the men 20 years and older, the ones who had been counting the census, to bring an annual offering of a half shekel to the temple. Well, they can only accept certain temple currency, and the scholars are debated on why that was the case. Now, some people are going to say, well, it's because the Roman currency would have emperors on that, and they didn't follow the emperors. They wanted pure coins. Some would say, well, there are pagan symbols on, other, on the currency. And some would just simply say, well, the temple currency was a pure silver. And so they want to make sure the purest of things was given to the Lord. We don't know, frankly, why it was requirement of a particular type currency. That's all speculation at that point. What we do know is that only the temple currency was accepted. And so the people who came in who didn't normally do business in the temple currency would have to come in, exchange money, just like you would when you travel to another country, if you travel for business or even travel on vacation. They would exchange their money so they'd have the correct temple currency to give this half shekel offering that was required according to Exodus chapter 30. And so, again, even the presence of the money changers was there for convenience. And so how does Jesus respond to what the temple has been made here and the business happening in the temple? Well, back in John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he, Jesus, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The text here in verse 15 says he drove them all out. The all there includes not just the animals, but the people. He did a makeshift whip with whatever he could find his hands on there. And he drove out all the people, the money changers, the animal sellers, and the animals themselves, all with this whip and with his words. And I love one author described it this way. Here you see the blazing anger of the selfless Christ. Again, to defy a lot of our kind of soft-spoken Jesus expectations here. You have the blazing anger of the selfless Christ. He is showing a holy anger, a righteous anger. And why was he so righteously angry? Because the temple was not to be used as man wanted to use it. It was not our choosing of how the temple got to be used. It was a place for God to dwell. It was a place for the Gentiles to come, learn who the one true God was. It was a place for the Jews to come, worship the one true God. It was to be a place of worship and a place of outreach. It was not to be invented however they wanted it to be. Used. In fact, we see this very reason why he was so upset in verse 16. And he, Jesus, told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So Jesus tells them why they're not supposed to be there. This is not to be a place of business. It's a place of worship, a place of the Gentiles discovering who God is. Now, just kind of side note here that's important. Jesus was not objecting to the sacrificial system. Some people try to take this text to say Jesus was objecting to sacrifices. No, that's not what this is about. He's not objecting to sacrifices, and he's not even objecting to corruption. Some people take this text to say, well, obviously there was corruption going on among the money lenders or the people selling. We have absolutely no evidence of that. That's all mere speculation. What Jesus tells us of why they're not to be there is because they're not supposed to be doing business there. It's not to be a place of trade. He's objecting to their very presence in the temple, nothing more in that. Christ was zealous for the temple to be what God designed for it to be. And the disciples get that. Verse 17 tells us that in John 2, verse 17. His disciples, Jesus' disciples, remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They're quoting Psalm 69, 9 here. The disciples saw what Jesus was doing. They saw the commotion as he's overturning tables and throwing money. And they interpret it with Psalm 69, 9. It was a zeal that he had for the house of the Lord, for the temple. But realize why he was so zealous. 
again, this was not how, what the temple was supposed to be. In fact, if you go to Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 21, this is a prophecy of the coming day of the Lord. And it tells what the temple's going to be like in that day of the Lord. And look at what it says. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice, and by the way, the all there includes the nations. If you go in the verses right before that in Zechariah 14, it's about the nations coming alongside the Jews to worship. All, including the nations who sacrifice, may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And notice this, in the verse 20, there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. And the prophecy of the coming day of the Lord, one of the things about the temple, not only will the nations come to worship with the Jews, but there will be no traitors, no business being done. It will be a place purely of worship in that. And so Christ was zealous for the temple to be what God designed for it to be. But in so doing, don't miss the fact that Christ was also zealous for the nations. There's a missions aspect to this as well, if you want to use that term. There's an outreach aspect of this as well. God is the one who made the nations. We see that going back to Genesis. We go to Revelation into the Bible, and there's a day coming when there'll be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping the Lord. God's heart is for all the nations to know Him. That permeates all of Scripture, missions, outreach, loving the nations, and throughout all the pages from the beginning to the end of the Bible. And we see that here as well. Because the Gentiles were supposed to come to the court of the Gentiles to find who God was, and they couldn't because they've been crowded out for convenience for the Jews to have all the selling going on. For their own convenience, the Jews have pushed aside the Gentiles having an opportunity to know who God was. So the house of the Lord was not what Jesus desired for it to be. He wanted to be a place of worship and a place for the nations. And so he responds strongly. And how he responds has deep prophetic symbolism. What he's doing and the way he responds is basically making a messianic claim and the Jews get that. And that leads us to our second contrast, not just the contrast of what the temple was supposed to be versus how it's being used, but it leads to a contrast of belief and unbelief. Because here in John 2, in Jesus cleansing the temple, some believe and some do not believe. So you see a big contrast here between belief and unbelief. And so let's look at verse 18 in the context of this. So John 2, 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, first of all, notice the Jews do not object to what Jesus did. Notice the Jews do not object to the rightness of what Jesus did. They didn't say, like, hey, hey, no, no, it's okay for them to be here in the court of details. No, no, it's okay. They don't object to that. They don't say, well, we've always done it this way. There's no objection to the rightness of what Jesus did. The objection, if you will, is what right do you have to do this? They understood that this was deeply prophetic of what he was doing. And so they demand basically a messianic sign. Show us that you're the Messiah who really can make this change. But Jesus won't give them the sign they're looking for. In fact, he will give them a sign, but it's not what they're expecting. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, this is where our English fails us a little bit here. Because when we saw Jesus in the temple, cleansing the temple, the Greek word for temple there was the word for the whole temple complex, which would include the court of the Gentiles as well. When Jesus says destroy this temple, he's in a totally different word. He uses the word that specifically speaks to the holy of holies and the temple, the most holy part of the temple. Not the whole complex, but the holy of holies. And so you can almost imagine Jesus saying, and I kind of have... Forgive me for holy imagination. Jesus pointing at himself as he says this. Destroy this temple. Destroy this holy of holies. The place where God dwells. Remember the holy of holies was the most sacred spot because that's where God's presence was most fully known on earth. 
And Jesus is saying, you want, you're gonna, you want a sign? Destroy this. Destroy me. I am the Holy of Holies. I am God's presence now on earth. Destroy me. In three days, I'm coming right back. And so he's sharing that with them, but they don't believe it. He even clarifies for us, this is what it's about, verse 21. John gives us a little editorial comment. But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. Do they believe it? No. Verse 20, back up one verse, instead they mock him. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? They totally miss the spiritual significance of what? Jesus was talking about, which John shows us over and over again. And John, people who misunderstand. It's one of the themes of John, like I told you we'd be looking for when we first started the series. Over and over, he shows us people misunderstanding who Jesus is to help us understand who Jesus is. They miss it. But in the contrast force of belief and unbelief, look at verse 22. When therefore he, Jesus, was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. So you have this belief contrasted with unbelief. How did the disciples believe? Well, they believe post-resurrection. Remember, John is, is writing with a post-resurrection perspective. The, the resurrection colors the entire book of John here. And they, after they see Jesus rise from the dead, they remember this account of the temple. They remember what had happened and what do they believe. And notice this is significant. They believe two things, the scripture and the word of Jesus. And notice that, that those two are equated here. Jesus is the Word of God. We saw that a few weeks ago. And the Word of God is all about Jesus. They are really one and the same. And the disciples believe the two on equal footing. But how are the disciples able to believe, friends? They're able to believe because they understood the Scriptures. When Jesus starts cleansing the temple, back up in verse 17, and his disciples see it, they're not all confused, going, why is he doing this? He's going crazy. He's lost his mind. They don't do that. They know what he's doing because they interpret what Jesus did Verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. They knew what Jesus was doing because they knew the scriptures. Their belief was tied to their knowledge of the scriptures. Likewise, after Jesus rises from the dead, they understand this, destroy this temple, his body, and three days will come back to life. They understood it because of the scriptures. Friends, the scriptures make us wise unto salvation. It did for them, and it does for us as well. And so there's a contrast between belief and unbelief. But the contrast grows in the next several verses. And it's a very sobering contrast because now there's not just a contrast between belief and unbelief. There's a contrast between belief and unbelief that is cloaked as belief. Did you catch that? There's a contrast now between belief, genuine belief, and belief that is cloaked, excuse me, and unbelief that is actually cloaked, disguised as belief. And it becomes a sobering warning for us. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Well, again, our English does us a little bit of disservice here as we try to look at this. It says that, first of all, that many believed. Normally, we talk about the word belief in the Bible. It's done in a Greek tense that means ongoing action. It's belief that has ongoing effects in our life. This is an unusual form of the word belief here because the tense of the belief is a one-time action with no ongoing results. So many believed, but the word here is they believe, but there's no change. There's no ongoing results. It's just a decision, if you will, a one-time decision in their life with no effects in their life. And that's what many of them do. They see this miracle worker who comes in and can cleanse the temple. They see this guy who's doing signs to turn water into wine. And they're like, I want that. And they're captivated by the miracle worker, but they're not captivated by what he came to do. So realize what the belief is that's here for us. 
And but Jesus knows that, verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Well, I think our English translators you know, didn't do a service here because the word that's translated entrust is the exact same word believe that was translated the verse earlier. So here you have, in, these, in verse 23 and 24, the same verb used twice. Many believed in his name, but Jesus did not entrust himself to him. The word entrust and believe are the exact same words in the Greek. So really a more literal reading of this text would be many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not believe in them. They believed in him. They liked what he was doing, but it wasn't a belief that changed them. And Jesus knows that. So he doesn't know. Basically, if you want to summarize that verse, Jesus does not believe their belief. Jesus doesn't believe their belief. Because why? Because he's God. He knows all things. We call that his omniscience. We'll talk about that coming up this spring when we get to the attributes of God study on Wednesday night. Jesus knows their heart. And in fact, they don't even have to open their mouth to tell them they don't really believe. Because verse 25, it says, And he needed no one to bear witness about man. For himself knew what was in man. He's God. He knows what's inside them. My friends, that's really a sobering warning for us. Because it's easy for the people who see this cleansing of the temple, who see the water going to wine, to want to believe in that, but to not let that belief change them. So just to say, oh yeah, I, I like what he's doing, but to not really surrender to him as their Lord. It was entirely different to believe in this guy who does signs and to actually follow him as their Lord. But friends, before we throw stones, isn't that true for us as well? It's one thing for us to pray a sinner's prayer, to walk an aisle, to shake a pastor's hand, to get wet in the baptistry. That's entirely different from making Christ our Lord and falling in love with Jesus for who Jesus really is in this. And so we have a contrast here between belief, belief is grounded in the Scriptures and understanding who Christ is because of the Scriptures, and unbelief, but also between belief and unbelief is really cloaked and disguised as Belief. Well, there's one more contrast in this text that I want to see, and it's a small point, and it's, not, it's far from even the main point of the text, but I think it bears mentioning. And that's the contrast of continued sacrifice versus no more sacrifices. The contrast of continued sacrifice versus no more sacrifice. And that is in a little phrase in verse 13. <clears throat> so look back in verse 13 with me. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's that one little phrase, the Passover of who? The Jews. Okay, so scholars start speculating why John put this in here, that phrase. Because John does give historical context. He's got Gentile readers in mind who don't understand all the things, even the Passover. So he clarifies this is a Passover celebration of the Jews. But I believe that one of the reasons John put that in there, again, he's writing post-resurrection. He's writing in the context of the early church period here. And the Christians didn't celebrate the Passover. The Christians didn't keep doing this. They, at least they didn't celebrate the sacrifice part of the Passover. That's why we don't come in here if you're visiting today and you don't have to worry about me getting a sheep in here and a knife and cutting a sheep's throat in here and bleeding out a sheep on the front of us. Why? We don't do sacrifices anymore. Why are there no more sacrifices? Because Christ has come. He is the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. Christ is the final Passover lamb. And because of Christ's sacrifice, we no longer need sacrifices anymore. He is the one who has rescued us from our sin. He is the one who has delivered us from our spiritual bondage. And we don't need to keep doing sacrifice because the sacrifice that delivers us is already past tense done. And with it already being done, the sacrifices don't continue. I think John is trying to show that, that the Passover of the Jews was what was going on. It was not saying the Christians continue to celebrate. What do we celebrate instead? Communion, the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate next Sunday. It's where Jesus took the Passover meal with his disciples and he gave it new meaning. It was no longer about these lambs being, being slain. He was the one who would be slain. By his body being broken, his blood being shed, we can now have 
forgiveness of sins. So you even have a small contrast here, but with great implications of the Passover of the Jews versus the fact that Christ is the final sacrifice for us. Well, as we come to a close, we've seen three contrasts here. Contrast the temple being what it was supposed to be, what God designed it to be, versus how it was being used. And the meaning of the text, I believe, is bound up in, in these contrasts. The temple was to be a place of worship and a place for the nations to find God, but that had all been thrust aside for convenience of the Jews. We saw the contrast of belief rooted in knowing Christ and knowing his word versus unbelief, just people being captivated by who Jesus is or what Jesus might do. There's difference in lordship versus just interest in Jesus. There's the contrast of the ongoing sacrifice of the Passover and not needing ongoing sacrifices because Christ is the final sacrificial lamb who's delivered us. Remember, in John, it's not just about the meaning of the text here. John has written these things so that we might believe. And like I told you several times before as we worked through John, when we come to the Gospel of John, it confronts us with questions. We shouldn't leave John to say, well, that's interesting, Jesus did that. The Gospel of John demands a response from us as well. And so can I just make some application from these contrasts for us? We know what the meaning of the text is, but what's the application of the text to us? We don't have a temple today to go to. The temple now is the people of God. Why does God, what is the point of the temple of God today, the people of God today, that we might glorify him, that we might make him known to others? Isaiah 43, 7, Jesus, or God describes for us the people he's created, whom he's formed for his glory. Our lives, friends, are not about us. It's all about Isaiah 43, 7, all about God's glory. And why does he save us so we would, Isaiah 43, 7, glorify him, but also 2 Corinthians 5, that we might be made ministers of reconciliation so that others know who Christ is. So the same function of the temple that God would be glorified that people might know who he is is the same function of us as a temple of God or the people of God today is that Jesus might be glorified and the people, the nations in view and particularly, would come to know him. And so the question we have to ask for ourselves is, are we fulfilling the mission of what he's called us to be? Are our lives together glorifying God and leading the nations, the lost around us here in Montgomery and the earth to Christ? Or have often we done what the Jews did? We kind of thrust aside living that mission because of the convenience of what we want for ourselves. I believe that's one of the questions that Jesus cleansing the temple demands of us as well. But secondly, we saw the contrast of belief, or at least professed belief, versus genuine belief versus not believing at all. And so again, it was easy for people at the time to be like, man, this guy cleansed the temple. I like him. I'm going to follow him. But they were only interested in just the kind of the curiosity of who Jesus was. The question we each have to ask of ourselves is, well, have I really come to a place that I'm not just trusting Jesus because I don't want to go to hell? I've not just prayed a prayer, but have I fallen in love with my Creator? Have I come to a place that I want to live with Him as my Lord, to make Him my boss, to follow Him all of my days? Do we understand who He is, or we just have an hour profession that's our hope, or do we have a life change that shows us that we really are His followers? I believe that's the second thing that this text demands of us to ask. And the third contrast was a contrast of the ongoing sacrifices versus the belief in Christ, the Lamb of God, as the final sacrifice for our sins. And that just simply takes us back to the fundamental question, what is the confidence that we know God? Do you have absolute confidence this day that you are trusting in Christ as your Savior, that believing Him as the Son of God, the one who died on the cross for your sins, but defeated death, the temple, the Holy of Holies, who was raised back on the third day that you might find freedom and forgiveness of sins? We'll see that question throughout the Gospel of John, but the Gospel of John takes you back to that fundamental question. So if so, let me say this, if not, if you've never trusted in Christ, that's where you have to start with this text. 
If you have trusted in Christ, what is your belief rooted in? Do you really believe in him and want to follow him? Are you living like he is your Lord, your boss, your master? And that then leads to the first question I mentioned of is your life then reflecting a life together in community, glorifying God and making the nations known? Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are thankful for your word that you've given to us. God, we're thankful that you've not left us without a witness. You've not left us wondering who you are or what it means to follow you. Lord Jesus, I'm thankful even for this account that you've given to us of the cleansing of the temple. Lord, as we see your holy, righteous anger, because you're passionate about your glory, you're passionate about your people worshiping you, you're passionate about the nations knowing you. Would you help us better understand what that means? Would you give me grace? Would you give grace to these precious brothers and sisters to come to new depths of understanding of what it means to live our lives to glorify you and to make you known to the nations? I pray you stir our heart with these thoughts this day and throughout this week ahead. And Lord, we just commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?